I am so thankful that you are here today. You're in for a special treat. I do have a lesson in our series that I'm going to continue to teach on of how would I have defended Paul once he got arrested if I had been hired as his defense counsel. But before we get to that, we've got a special guest with us this morning that I want to introduce to you. I want to call him up on stage and I want to have about a 15 minute interview with him and let you get to know him a little bit. His name is Michael Vowell, as in A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. Uh, his, uh, we would call him Rabbi Michael Powell. He is the rabbi at the congregation uh, that we're going to do the field trip to in a number of years. He's got a degree from Moody Bible Institute. He's got a master's from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's incredibly scholastically trained. He works on Hebrew scrolls. And, and has gifted one uh, in a beautiful frame in the library, if you get a chance to see it in the library. But he has, has uh, works with these old ancient scrolls and, and just does an amazing job. He preaches every Sabbath. So he had church yesterday. He's got his delightful daughter and her friend with them as well. And they're sitting down here with Rick Meadow and and uh, this crew right in here. So anyway, would you join me in calling up here and welcoming Michael Val, Rabbi Michael. <clears throat> this means he did church like twice in one weekend. I, I mean, he didn't get a day off. Please have a seat. Uh, Shalom, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Michael, you tell the, ju- the jury, tell... <laughs> Yeah, I've been working. I was in depositions yesterday until like six last night in New York and just got in late last night. I got to go back to New York this afternoon for another deposition tomorrow. Came back out of love for my children and love for y'all and that Michael was going to be here. And so, so yeah. Um, so excuse me if I lapse into my legal jargon for a moment. Please tell the jury. No. Um, tell, tell them a little bit about where you grew up and 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 your Hebrew heritage. Fill us in. That's really good. So I grew up on the south side of the city in uh, Sugarland, Texas. And uh, a little bit of my background, my dad is a reform, uh, reformed Jewish. He, he's now passed and gone to be with the Lord. So we grew up in an environment where our Judaism was really more about being born Jewish. And so for us, we would go to temple on the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah, and maybe for Passover, and then on Yom Kippur, the day where we fast all day and we pray all day as Jews and our family, we would go to the synagogue for the morning service and fast through the morning prayers all the way to lunch. That was about the extent of it. <laughs> and then uh, grew up going to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs, where really the bar was the most important part of the whole party that was going on. So... That was kind of our, our, our Judaism. It was a very secular, not to say that it wasn't meaningful, so don't hear me wrong. It was meaningful to us, but that was where the meaningfulness kind of ended for us, at least growing up. Okay, and somewhere in the midst of your life, you embraced Yeshua, Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, 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 as Messiah. That's correct. And fill us in. I, I'm not asking for the whole journey, but but fill us in briefly on, on your embracing of Jesus and, and how he's... Uh, uh, how he affected the direction of your life. You went to seminary. You've done these things. Fill us in. Well, let me give you the the four and a half minute version uh, of the story. So, uh, probably my story is not the one that you're expecting to to hear. So, 
for me, uh, my story kind of towards Yeshua began when I was about 11 years old. And uh, when I was 11 years old, I was the typical Jewish kid, Mark. I was the all-star pitcher on my baseball team. I made straight A's. I was, I was the typical kind of Jewish kid. And then at 12, I started dealing cocaine. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, by 13, I had overdosed on drugs. And I was strictly a businessman, so I never got involved with gangs. Because if you got involved with gangs, you were restricted to dealing drugs to one gang or another. And I was really about business, so I wanted to sell to all the gangs. And uh, so that was my kind of business profile in this. And I, I make light of it because I have children in the room with me here today. Um, but I lived a very hard life. Um, I was in and out of correctional schools and alternative schools. Um, got promoted into high school. And when I say got promoted, I mean got promoted. The principal of the middle school that I was in was so desperate to get me out of his school that they just promoted me into high school. Uh, <laughs> and it, I'll never forget the call to come in. I had been uh, busted selling ecstasy on the campus. And you got to imagine a 13-year-old kid running a drug ring in a middle school. And they said, um, we just want you out of here. And we want you to be somebody else's problem. So I went to a high school in my area where we lived in the Jewish community. We were kind of in the middle of the road. So on one side was kind of an impoverished area. On the other side was a very wealthy area. And we were right in the middle. So I got to go to school where there was a lot of kids with a lot of money. And I can remember thinking out a very naive thought that where there would be more money, there would be less drugs and less problems. And when I got there, there were less problems that were on the surface but there was a lot of money and a lot of drugs. And so my drug business turned into about a $1,000 a week drug business. I could move four or $500 or more worth of drugs during a lunch hour. And anyway, I met a girl who was involved in the same things I was involved in. We had a child when I was 16 and she was 15. And um, the night that she was born, Mark, December 13th, I remember we gave her up for adoption. And it was the smartest thing in the world to do um, I'm telling you the light version of my story. We were nowhere near needing to be parents. And uh, when the adopted parents came and took uh, our daughter, it crushed me. You know what it's like as a parent, you bond really fast. And the way the adoption worked, I don't know if they, I know they don't do it today. We got to stay with the baby for three days holding her. And all of our parents in here, we know how quick you bond. And when the adopted parents came and took her, I was crushed. And whoever I thought God was, I can remember at that moment saying, I'm done with you. And I uh, dropped out of high school, and the rest of the story I'll, I'll leave off the table. But I lived on the streets uh, for several years here in Houston, Texas, uh, wandering from drug house to drug house to drug house. And um, one night I was selling drugs in front of a church out in Sugarland. I used to sell drugs in front of this one church because the cops never went there, and Christians never messed with me. It was really the best of all worlds. I mean... <laughs> I was like that kid that they were like, yeah, please don't bring him to the youth group. So uh, <laughs> so I used to sit out there, and, and I really was that kid. My hair was in Liberty Spikes, and I had, you know, face rings and earrings, and I just, I, I looked like that kid. And uh, this one guy, though, he took an interest in me, and he sat down next to me one night, and uh, he noticed I had a journal, and he asked me what was in it. I told him it was my poetry, and he said, well, let me let me hear what you've written. So... I read to him some of my poetry, and I don't know what got into him, but he invited me to come to his home. And uh, he said, you look like you're hungry. And I had been. I'd been living on the streets. I said, I am hungry. And he was very brave. He brought me to his house, and he fed me a meal. And he didn't, like, cram anything down my throat, but I knew he was a believer. And as a Jewish person, that was the first time I had ever met somebody that called themselves a Christian. And I remember thinking, 
if that's what this is all about, that was amazing. And that was kind of the first step in my journey uh, towards the Messiah. About a year later, through a bunch of just horrible, horrible sets of conditions, again, it's not appropriate for this room, um, I was on the floor in my apartment, and I was living in Houston, and I was ready just to bring it into my life. I felt like heaven was owed to me. If there was a God, he must have done all of this, the darkness, the depression, losing a child or giving her up for adoption. Uh, I felt like I had been around enough in Houston. I had sold drugs in the slums of Houston, and I had sold drugs out in River Oaks. And there was no such thing as there being some kind of like righteousness just because you were poor and just because you had money didn't mean things were better. And just because you were middle class didn't mean that your punk was all that great. I just I was done with what I had seen out here. And just in that moment, Mark, um, nothing out here, so there was no voices outside of my head or anything like that, but just inside of my heart, I just heard two simple words inside my heart, and it was, trust me. And I don't know how, because nobody had really ever just preached the gospel to me, but for some reason, I knew that meant to put my trust in Yeshua. Excuse me, that's Hebrew for Jesus, or to trust Jesus. And so there on my apartment floor, not really knowing what to do, I just said, okay, whoever you are, Jesus, I... I'll try this. And um, Mark, I don't know how to explain it. The next day, I just went to the first church I could find, and it was a small little Baptist church, about 5,000, called Second Baptist. Um, (laughs) And Ed Young was preaching a message on marriage from Ephesians 5, and he was coming to the close of his message, and in good, I guess, Baptist style, he was going to do his altar call. And I can remember him pointing out, and he said, it doesn't matter how dirty or how filthy you are, Jesus is a perfect bridegroom, and he accepts you just the way you are today. And I remember going, that sounds right. And so I went down, and I I asked Yeshua to come into my heart. I believed in his name, and um, after that, I went into hiding for a good while. I had to because of my lifestyle. There 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 was actually a hit on my life from the Asian mafia, and there was just a lot of stuff going on. So A lot of us relate to that. Absolutely. <laughs> I told you, mine's not the traditional Jewish story. Um, I went into hiding. I turned phones off. I, I turned pagers off. Remember when we used to have pagers, right? And... Um, and all I did was read my Bible and I watched Billy Graham videotapes because that's all I thought that's what you guys did. I know what Jews do. I just didn't know what you guys did. So I thought all y'all did was read your Bible and watch Billy Graham. So I didn't do anything else but that. And then when I got done watching Billy Graham, I would try to preach like him to my one plant and cat that was in my apartment. And my plant died and the cat ran away. So I figured I better find a better calling. Uh, <laughs> I began to pursue the Lord and, and miraculously, and, and I thank God for His grace. Mine is that story where it took 8 to 10 weeks and about 10 to 11 years of drug addiction. He just, he miraculously took it out of my life, and um, it was just amazing what he Amen. did. Amen. So, Mark, from there... Uh, yeah, how do you go from there to being the rabbi at this uh, congregation? They're, they're nuts over there, No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's amazing because um, in my heart of hearts, I knew, I knew that what I needed to experience was Jesus as the Jewish Messiah that I kept encountering over and over and over again in the scriptures. I knew he had to be for the Jewish people. I just, I knew this in my heart of hearts. And I felt a sense of, of calling into ministry, but I didn't have any self-confidence. You got to understand, a high school dropout, living on the streets, I had to reteach myself English and math. 
when I came to faith in the Lord, just wow. to get through a normal day and job. And I married a gal um, who came from a very different story than mine, brought up in the church, gave her life to the Lord at six years old, and I was able to seduce her with my charm into marrying me. And uh, <laughs> and she was the first one. She looked at me one day and she said, Michael, you're not the village idiot that you think you are. You're bright. You have a sharp mind. And, and let's get you in, on the college route. So Really, at her prompting and her suggesting, uh, I never thought that I could do any of this stuff, Mark, honestly. I just I didn't think it was in the deck of cards for me. So she encouraged me. I applied to Moody and uh, got into Moody Bible Institute and the Jewish Studies program in Chicago and finished a four-year degree in two and a half years, graduated the top of the class, all the honors and stuff that just comes from serving the Lord. And then from there, I went to Dallas Seminary and did my THM, our master's in uh, Hebrew and ancient Semitic languages, and again, graduated at the top and all that. It just, at the end of the day, it was a lot of loving people and a lot of God's grace on my life. And from there, we've always just served our community, Mark, starting with my own family, wanting to present the Messiah to them. And then from there, wherever we've gone, we've always lived in the Jewish community, been around Jewish people, and we feel like if Yeshua is for anybody, he's for the Jewish people, and he wants to see the salvation of his own people. And so, I just want to be a part of that wherever I am. Amen. Well, one of, one of the points that I've tried to make in the process of the study we're doing on Paul is Paul never uses the word conversion. Right. Paul was a Jew from birth to death yeah. for eternity. He he says, I, I am a Pharisee. That's right. And he puts it in a present tense as a believer. He's um, He came to faith in Yeshua, in Jesus. But there's a difference there. And and I wonder if you could speak to how the, the commonality that's there between, you know, most people tend to, th- all right, my friend Rick. Rick, Rick's here a bunch. A bunch of y'all have met Rick. Rick's always my token Jew friend that I point out when I need to. Love um, Rick will be able to tell you if y'all want to talk to Rick. In the a lot of mentality uh, of this world, there's this idea that Christianity is for Gentiles and Judaism is for Jews, and and that we don't really have. You know, how are you going to have a Jew who's a Christian, or how are you going to have a Christian who's a Jew? Yet first three decades of the church, you're going to have trouble finding a goy like us in a place like this. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's it's not an easy thing to do. So how talk to us about the commonality. Uh, you're at a Jewish synagogue that is a Messianic Jewish synagogue. That's Speak correct. to that for us. That's correct. So, you know, for us... Um, as we look back and we look on the scriptures, I think we all realize that Yeshua and his early disciples, they were all Jewish guys, um, all with very good Jewish sentiments. I mean, I, I think the reason why Kepha or, or Simon Peter could preach a great sermon in Acts 2 based on the Tanakh was because this was a Jewish boy brought up in Jewish synagogue. These were scriptures that we heard over and over and over again. And so for us, as we look back at it, we go... This thing that that we do together, whether we're going to call it Messianic Judaism or we're going to call it Christianity, there there should be a common core about it that should link back to its ancient past. And in its its and I don't like to use the term Hebrew roots because that involves a certain movement that I'm not comfortable with, but it's it's 
it, it's Jewish soil that it came out of. And I think there is something about that that can link us together. I mean, at our congregation that we, we serve at, our congregation is probably 20% Jewish and 80% non-Jewish. And these are people that have come and found a common core with us and seeing that when Yeshua was born, as I like to say in our congregation, he was born according to ancient Jewish promises, prophecies that are so specific only he could fulfill them. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law, to his Torah. He died as a Jewish man underneath Roman law, and when he resurrected, he's still the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's still a Jewish man sitting on a throne and one day will come back to a Jewish city called Jerusalem. And we think those are big things that we should be able to wrap our hearts around together. Um, so when when we were uh, uh, at uh, the congregation a couple of weeks ago, one of the two of the songs you sang are songs we sing. You used Yeshua, whereas we use the the Greek Jesus. Well, actually, because Greek is Yesu. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the English of the Greek of the Hebrew. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> but we're right nestled into it. Uh, uh, I, my, my question is this: this um, this commonality that we share. Mm-hmm. How does it bolster your how, how can you bolster our faith in Jesus is what I, I want to give us give us why Jesus is is the Messiah explain it yeah from a Jewish mentality you know so from a, a Jewish perspective what helps me whenever I'm talking with somebody the very first thing I always like to do is a, a study in the Bible that I call the table of contents Bible study um, because as most of you know, when you study the, the Hebrew Bible, we arrange the books a little bit different than, say, in a Christian Bible. In a Christian Bible, they like to do it uh, throughout the ages, following the Septuagint in the 3rd century A.D. But the Tanakh itself is broken up into three divisions, the Torah, the prophets, and then the writings. And so whenever I'm talking to people, the best way to understand the Jewish scriptures is when you get to the end of Deuteronomy. Do you remember there's a famous passage there that says, Moses has died. And no one has arisen again in Israel like Moses, who's performed all of the deeds and wonders that Moses performed. Do you guys remember that passage? And that's based on a prediction that was just prior to that in Deuteronomy 18, that there would be a prophet like Moses who would rise up in the land. Now, interesting, Mark, for us Hebrew geeks out there, that word rise up is the word um, kum or yakum. Mm -hmm. When that word gets taken up into the mouth of the prophets, that's the word for resurrection, and that's really important for us because later on in Acts chapter 2, when Kepha quotes Deuteronomy 18, he quotes it as a fulfillment of Yeshua's resurrection. That the reason why Yeshua is the prophet like Moses isn't just because he's a great lawgiver, but because he's truly the prophet who has risen, kum, he's resurrected out of the ground. So for me, I think that's some of what we can bring to the table is just a little bit of the Hebrew background. But what's even more fascinating is if you think about the way the whole canon is organized. So you get this prediction, wait for the prophet, right? Yeah. And he's not come yet. Now, in Jewish tradition, the first book of the prophets is the book Joshua. So we start our prophets a little earlier than you guys do. So Joshua is the first of our prophets. And the first command that you get in the prophets that is told to Joshua is meditate on the law of Moses. So you go prediction, meditate. At the end of the prophets, you have the Italian prophet, Malici. You guys all know this guy. And at the end, you get another famous prediction about the Messiah who is coming, and then that ends the prophet. So you get prediction, meditate, 
prediction. And then we start the next part of our canon called the writings. And it starts with the book of Psalms. And everybody knows what Psalm 1 is about, don't we? To meditate. So you go prediction, meditate. Prediction, meditate. Well, what do you think comes at the end of Second Chronicles? That's the last book of writings in the Jewish canon. Very last verse, John Selhammer did a fam- fantastic job on this. It's a messianic prediction looking forward to the king who would come. And if you look and study the predictions, meditate. Look for the prophet. Wait for him to come. At the end of the prophets, we're waiting for a high priest figure to come. Meditate. At the end of Chronicles, we're waiting for a king to come. We're meditating. Now think about this. When Yeshua meets the guys on the road to Emmaus, remember what he says? How slow in your heart to believe all that was written about me in the the Torah, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, or in the writings. And I think Yeshua is probably pointing back to that mark and saying, guys, I've always been there right at the seams. You were supposed to be meditating and looking for me. Why are you so slow to connect all the dots together? So I think that's how we can bring some import to one another. Prophet, priest, and king. That's it. Um, Will you all join me in welcoming Michael? Thank you, brother. Thank you, Mark. I hope that was good. Fantastic. One... One of the reasons, one of the reasons that I wanted Michael here is not just for this dialogue, which honestly I'm sitting here thinking, gee, why do I have to teach this lesson? I can save this lesson. Teach this later. We keep going. But I don't want to sate your hunger and thirst. I want you hungry and thirsty because I've been leaning on him to come fill in and substitute for me sometime when I'm gone. And I want you all to hear. Yeah. Hear the blessing you would have. So with that, we're going to make a small transition. Paul, a legal case study. And to put you back into the framework of where we were, what I have tried to do for the last 10 weeks is say, if I had been hired to defend Paul when Paul was arrested in the temple, how would I do it? Now, ultimately, as God wills, as we get toward the end of this class, Once I've finished reading about 25 books on Roman law, and I'm telling you, man, I read law for a living, and this is tough sledding, okay? I'm just, if you want to pray for me, pray for me to make it through this. But uh, there are a lot of theologians who've written on Paul and his arrest and all, and that's all well and good. And there are a lot of lawyers who've written on Roman law, and that's all well and good. I've yet to find the the lawyer who's a Pauline scholar where I could just read what they had to say and put it all together. So I'm having to put this from scratch for me in a lot of ways. And part of the issue is, is exactly what was Paul being tried for? He's being tried under Roman law, not Jewish law. He's got Jewish accusers. The prosecutors are Jews. Unlike our civil system, I mean our criminal system today, Rome didn't have prosecutors per se. There, there wasn't a district attorney, judge. They didn't have a U.S. attorney. Individuals would bring criminal cases as well as civil cases. Which means all of you could take me to court for speeding when I pass you on the road because you would have that right under Roman law. You have to be very careful when you do it, though. 
So there are a lot of implications that really open up a better understanding of what Paul went through and why he went through it and how God worked through all of that to disperse his gospel message in a Jewish and Gentile world. And so that's where we're ultimately headed at the end of this is to the trial. But I do want to talk to you, and what I've done in the past few weeks is talked about the different witnesses that I would bring, and this is not working to advance that. Would you punch in number one and up? Oh, there. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Ah, okay. Richard is the techno geek. Good job, Richard. Okay. So what we've tried to do is look at witnesses. And we've discussed using some thus far. But what I really want to emphasize to you today is an issue of credibility. Because, frankly, I've learned in 35 years of trying lawsuits, you can find someone who will say just about anything. Especially if you hire them and claim they're an expert. I was trying a case one time in David West Court and it dealt with this ladder and whether or not the ladder had been defectively made. And the other side had an expert to testify that the ladder was great. And this expert is on the stand and he's just lying through his teeth. And Judge West is, was, was never a, a gentle soul. And he ordered the jury to go back into the jury room. Now, how many of you have served on jury duty? Okay, do you want to know what happens when the judge orders you to go back into the jury room? Sometimes it's this. The judge looked at the witness and he said, I am sick and tired of you sitting here on that jury stand under oath lying through your teeth. I am not going to have that in my courtroom. This is not Alice in Wonderland where little is big and big is little and I don't care if you are an engineer. If you keep lying like this, I'm going to turn you into the district attorney. Jury knows you're lying. I know you're lying. Everybody knows you're lying. Now tell the truth. Let's get the jury back in here. That's what happens. So credibility is an important concept, and it's one that is important for us to look at. So more than just simply having witnesses, I want to have some credible witnesses. I want witnesses that are believable. Let me give you one more trial example before I move into this. I had a case that uh, uh, I was trying one time and it dealt with 21 people who had arguably a disease of the lungs called asbestosis. That's a scarring in the lungs. And you can diagnose someone generally off of an x-ray, whether or not you see uh, uh, scarring down in the lower lobes of the lungs. That's the, the telltale sign of asbestosis. So these cases had been sent to me by a lawyer who had had these x-rays read by a doctor and the doctor said these 21 men had scarring of the lungs. I get the case and I'm about to take it to trial and I'm looking for the doctor to come testify and it turns out the doctor is under indictment for false reading of x-rays claiming people are sick when they're not. Well, that's not the kind of witness I plan on putting on the stand. So I have to go find another pulmonologist 
who is board certified, who knows how to read these x-rays, who can make the diagnosis. I bring him in. I said, here are my 21 plaintiffs. I'm about to go to trial. Uh, uh, um, I've just lost my doctor. Uh, evidently, he's not the real deal, or at least he's under a cloud of suspicion. And I can't put him on the stand in light of that. So would you look at these x-rays and testify for me? He looked at the x-rays and he said, well, I can for 18 of them. I think 18 of them have asbestosis. He said, but these three look like Olympic athletes. Yeah, that's not quite the way I laughed, but it was close. (laughs) So I'll tell you what I told him. I said, fantastic. He said, what do you mean? He said, I was, I was hesitant to tell you this. I said, no, 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 no. I said, fantastic. So we're going to put you on the stand tomorrow. He said, but, but wait, three of these guys. He says, I don't want to lie under oath. I said, you can't lie under oath. He said, but the three of these guys don't have it. I said, right. So that's what you're going to tell the jury. He said, what? I said, you're going to tell the jury what you believe to be true. And what you believe to be true is that three of these guys don't have it yet. They might have the scarring and it might not be showing up. They've certainly got the exposure. They're certainly in the danger zone. But you don't see it on the x-ray. I said, just be honest. Because the jury hears the truth. And authenticity rings true. It's what Rabbi Michael was saying. Some things fit like a hand in a glove. It just rings of of authenticity, of credibility. And you you don't want someone who's going to lie. You want someone who's going to... So I've got to have witnesses that are credible. Now the extension for us in this class is I need a credible text as well because I can't truly put Barnabas right here and put him under oath and let you look at him I teach all of my witnesses who testify look at the jury look at the jury because I want the jury to be able to see their eyes When people will look you in the eye, you've got a much better feel of whether or not they're being honest. I don't have the witness to put here in front of you. I've got a text. It's the Bible. And so one question that I would have if I was going through this series, if you're watching it on the internet or reading it somewhere, is, is the Bible a credible source for what these witnesses would in fact say? You see the issues? That's what I want to deal with in the next 25 minutes. So our witnesses, we've already called Ananias. He had credibility. The Acts account, Paul even says, among the Jewish community, talk to Ananias. As a Jewish believer in Jesus as Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, he is still someone who the Jews respected as being a tzedek. He was a righteous man. He was a good guy. And so you've got Ananias, you've got Barnabas, and we talked about that some as well. But there's a third witness I'd want to bring in. I'd want to bring in John Mark. Now, John Mark was also Jewish. We've got John Mark's Greek names, 
although John could be his Jewish name, one of his Jewish names. On the first missionary trip, John Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Antioch. He went with them to where they put in on Cyprus, all the way down to Paphos at the southern tip of Cyprus. He went with, that's where the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulius, was converted in his household and likely sent them to his family in Pisidian Antioch. So the John Mark and Paul and Barnabas and crew go in and sail over to Perga on the southern coast of, Italy, of, of Turkey. But at Perga, while the mission trips headed north up into the hills to get to Pisidian Antioch, Mark hightails it back to Jerusalem. He abandons the mission effort. He stops all of the hardships that Paul, the stoning that Paul's going to suffer in Lystra and other, in Iconium and, and Derby and all of the problems that Paul's going to have. John Mark misses him. And we don't know why exactly. But I don't think John Mark had a good enough excuse for Paul. It's not like he got a cablegram that his mother was in bad health and he needed to get back. Wasn't one of those cell phone calls that make you change your direction. And I got to tell you, if I'm the lawyer and I'm sitting here and I know this about John Mark, the warning signals are going off on me and I'm making big notes on my legal pad. I'm getting Tim Wilson to go out there and find this guy and talk to him. Because... Paul wasn't exactly Mr. Popular among the Christian community in Jerusalem at the start. At the start, Paul's the one who's the chief prosecutor for the temple system against the Christian community. Paul is the prosecutor who's holding the, the, the flags, the clothes. You know, those, Paul's the one who's on site for Stephen's stoning because you had to have someone present under Jewish law who would be able to accept a signal if a new witness came forward. And so they would wave flags or clothes or cloaks from the high priest to the wall in Jerusalem to outside the city where the stoning's going to take place, which is the stoning place is just the top of a cliff where they're going to push him over. And if that doesn't kill him, they chunk the rocks on him. Paul is the one there with the cloak, looking for the signal, gives the okay. Paul's not Mr. Popular. He's the one who takes the letters from the chief priests and goes to Damascus to arrest the believers. The believers hold great suspicion of Paul after his coming to faith. They think he may just be playing them. Now, I'm sitting here as a lawyer and I'm thinking John Mark and Paul have had some type of a falling out or something has happened because John Mark's just left and he's Barnabas' cousin. So he's going to be tight with Barnabas, you figure. 
And he goes back to Jerusalem. And I'm thinking, what, what's he telling them? What's he telling the church? Gossip doesn't happen only in middle school. You know, he's, he's, do you, what do you think he's telling them? We don't know. But I want to tell you what evidence we do have. After the mission trip is over, Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem in Acts 15. There's a big conference. And in the conference is this huge issue. It's almost the exact opposite of what Michael and I were talking about. The issue is, okay, we know that Christianity is Jewish. And we know that God has opened the door for the Gentiles, for the nations, for the ethnos to to come in. But the question becomes, do the Gentiles have to become Jewish first to be a Christian? And that's the big theological debate. Well, in the process of this Acts 15 conference, Paul and Barnabas come down. And Paul and Barnabas, and and I'm sitting here as a lawyer thinking, okay, is Paul in for a bad reception? No, he wasn't at all. Even though John Mark had been there for a long time telling the stories and trying to justify, no doubt, trying to justify why he abandoned high and dry the mission effort. And everything in human nature says that John Mark's going to come back with every good reason to believe him. He's been established in the Jewish community. He is an established Christian. He's an established believer. Believe him, not the Paul. After birth of the apostles. But when they come, all the assembly falls silent. They listen to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Is there a warning in my legal pad? Yeah. But I look at the scriptures and and this is not one. I mean, John Mark didn't go badmouth Paul. He didn't sow seeds of discord. He didn't set up this little club difference. Because the Jews there accepted what Paul had been about with joy and sent Paul and Barnabas and others with a letter that goes out to the churches calling Paul and Barnabas dear friends. Now they did put Barnabas first (laughs) in the letter. That's okay. So these are dear friends. This is not a situation where, where, where Mark sowed seeds of discord, where Mark took care of his own uh, reputation, where Mark protected his own at the expense of Paul. Not at all. So I put that on my witness credibility, and this is a big credibility point for me. This is one where honesty and mission are trumping personal feelings and agenda. You know, John Mark is more concerned about the honest gospel and the mission. And the church is concerned about the mission and people being reached for Jesus. And that trumps what normally would be the personal feelings and the agendas that would human-wise exist in this situation. By the same token, how credible is the story that we're reading? It's pretty credible to me. Let me tell you why. If we look at a passage like Acts 15, 36 through 40, here's the story. So Paul decides, 
that it's a good thing to go back and visit those churches. And they decide that they need to go back and uh, uh, not just refresh the churches, but who knows what God might have in store for them. So let's put it up here. Acts chapter 15 at the end of the chapter. So after some days, Paul says to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and check on them. Paul's idea goes to Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas still seem to be joined at the hip. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Paul, great idea. This time let's get my cousin to go on the whole thing. Let's, let's you know, this time. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed and commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, that's, that's not... Hmm. I just lost my spot in this book where I was going to show you this marvelous passage. Against Stephanus, I think it was about line 45. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It was after they read the will. I got to the deposition. I'll have to tell you about it. There is a Greek word, uh, parazusmos, that's translated here, sharp disagreement. The Bible, here, let's just go back to the PowerPoint. The Bible, as a credible source, doesn't soft sell the story. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't make this, oh, let's just wash over any hard feelings. Oh, let's, everything was kumbaya. You know, they all joined hands, kumbaya. No, no, no. We read the ESV and it says there's a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. That perusismos doesn't just mean a sharp disagreement. It's a knockdown drag out. Okay, the Bible translators into English are softening it. The actual text is not sugarcoating anything. It's not trying to paint everything over. And make it all a smell. Oh, this story was written, you know, clearly the writer of Acts was just trying to show how, you know, and rounded everything up and made everybody look hunky-dory and all. Oh, no. I mean, the original text says they had a knockdown, drag-out fight. It's just translated sharp disagreement because we don't really want the Bible to read as ordinary in language as it actually does. They had a hissy fit with each other. They, they had, I mean, you, you come across the same word in the Old Testament where it's talking about God in the uh, Septuagint, in, the, the, in a Greek translation of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 29, the last of the books of the Torah, 29-27. Look at this passage. 
Perizusmos is used here in verse 27. The anger of the Lord, anger is a different Greek word, orge. The anger of the, of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses in the book. And then verse 28. Oh, thank you. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, again, different word, and fury and great wrath. That's orge is anger in the Greek, okay? But the Greek will read kai perusos, uh, perosusmo, it's dative, perosusmo megalo, great fury. And that's what's going on. This is a knockdown drag out between Paul. And Barnabas, and they split up, and they go their separate ways. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Again, I've got a credible text supporting a credible witness. This is not something that's just written down to try and make everything look like, you know, it it didn't change the black and white from the Wizard of Oz all of a sudden into color. You know, it's not a big, this is real. Honesty and mission, again, trumps personal feelings and agendas. So you've got passages like 1 Corinthians 9.6, Colossians 4.10, 2 Timothy 4.11, where you see Paul talking positively about Barnabas, and somewhere toward the end of Paul's life, John Mark has become integral, working with Paul in Romans, in, in Rome, in his Roman imprisonment when he writes Colossians. And then at the end of his life where he tells Timothy that John Mark is, is, is a value to him. This is a, a, a story of real people. And in its text, it gives real accounts. And these are things that make this credibility of these witnesses high for me. Uh, we've got seven minutes left in class and I want to throw in Peter on the credibility meter as well. Peter would be a huge concern for me. Peter is Mr. Peter, okay, Simon Peter, Kepha, or as we Americans pronounce it, if we don't have enough Cephas, but Aramaic word, Kepha is his Aramaic name, um, Peter, the rock, Rocky, just translate it, just call him Rocky, Rocky is a concern of ours, because Rocky is the big cheese, He's one of the big apostles that we read about so much. And we know those apostles were real people. Look at Luke's accounting. Luke is the same man who wrote Acts. Got the same credibility here. And Luke, in Luke 9.46 and in Luke 22.24, talks about how the, all the apostles are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. So you've got Peter in the midst of these guys arguing about which one's the greatest, which one's the greatest. Peter, who's been thrown in prison from the persecution in Jerusalem as a believer. Peter, who confesses Jesus first as the Son of God when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? He says, You are Yeshua HaMashiach. You are Jesus. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't get this from flesh and blood. This is God. You're hearing the Word of God. It's that same Peter who stands up on Acts in Acts 1 and 2 who preaches the Pentecostal sermon that opens the doors. 
thousands of Jews come to faith in Jesus through the, the Holy Spirit's working through Peter. Peter's a stalwart of the church. So how is Peter going to handle this guy named Paul going out and getting all this notoriety and success in the mission of the church? How's he going to do it? Well, just, I'll tell you now, Peter says really good things about Paul. And don't forget, first Gentile convert was Cornelius. Who was responsible for the first Gentile convert? Peter. I mean, Peter's got every reason to put Paul under his thumb. Peter's got every reason to put Paul down. Peter's got every reason to say that Paul is less than him. And it gets even worse. And you might be thinking, well, obviously what Paul must have done is just become a a sycophant, you know, a a yes man. Uh, Oh, yeah, man, Peter, you know, Peter. No, this is Paul. He's nobody's yes man except the Lord's. I mean, you read Galatians 2, and Paul says there was a time, look, the, the church knew that, that, that Christianity was for all peoples, not just Jews. And that Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, had broken down the walls that separated Jew and Gentile. So you can have a congregation like Rabbi Michael's, where however half the people are Gentiles. Rick and I were there laughing that they've got a Hispanics chanting the Torah. Really well, I might add. Rick looks at me and says, man, he hadn't made any mistakes. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's pretty good. You go in there and you're greeted by uh, an African-American who says Shabbat Shalom to you. This is, there's no cultural divide in Christianity. That's the point. So within the framework of this, Peter goes up to Antioch, and while he's in Antioch, he's having a good time with all of the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Until some other people come up and say, look, man, this is going to drive some of the Pharisees back in Jerusalem crazy. You need to stop this. This is going to really, this is not good. This is not good. And so Peter isolates himself from the Gentiles. Paul is no yes man. Paul calls him a Greek word, hypocrite. It is a Greek word, hypocrito or something like that, kritos, a hypocrite. He says it, and Paul even says, I said it to his face. Paul's no yes man. For anyone but the Lord. But that doesn't mean that Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 5 and 15, 5 in lifting up Peter and speaking in glowing terms about him. It doesn't mean that Peter in 2 Peter 3, 15 doesn't talk about the writings of Paul as difficult as they are to understand sometimes. I think he meant Romans 9, 10 and 11. Uh, uh, just joking. Um, but as difficult as they are to understand sometimes are still scripture to Peter. Why? Because mission and honesty trumped personal agenda and personal feelings. That shouts credibility to me. 
I think these witnesses to anyone who's going to give them a fair hearing are extremely credible witnesses to putting their life on the line. Not just their family, not just their job, not just their social standing. They will put their life on the line out of a conviction that Jesus is the Messiah who was suffered, died for their sins, resurrected unto a new life, and will come again to bring his bride home. That's conviction. And that's credibility. So here are your points for home and we're done. Paul wrote in that same letter where he recounted the story about Peter. Calling him a hypocrite. And he said if a law had been given that could give life. If the Torah was, was law that could give life. If, if we could take the Torah and we could live by it and live by it perfectly and, and, and we could please God in all of our actions and in all of our deeds, then righteousness would indeed be by law. How well do you do? I mean, we got to get it out of our system that God's got, God is a God of, of justice and don't start thinking that means, well, that just means my good deeds need to outweigh my bad. When someone comes and says to you, yeah, you can do this. Well, you're a good enough person. Your goodness will outweigh this bad one. That's not what anything's about. God doesn't put your deeds in the scales and say, hey, yeah, you're a little bit better. Yeah, I'm going to cut you. I'm going to create on a curve. No. God says, if you're going to live with a pure, holy, just God, you need to be pure, holy, and just. And that means any sin that you or I have has to be paid for. You just get to choose. Do you want to pay for it yourself? Or do you want to accept the payment of Messiah? That's, that's the legal equation that Paul's put out there. So I don't want to tamper with God's perfect recipe. I'm going to recognize that my righteousness needs to be by the righteousness of Jesus doesn't make living right any less important. It makes it more important. It's the way I honor my God. And it's what I believe is best for me and his kingdom. Point two. Paul and Barnabas had a chance to recount all that God had done with them when they went to Jerusalem. And that's when the, the, the church praised God for what he'd done. I ask you this question. When was the last time you just sat down and said, all right, I'm going to think of three things God has done for me and I want to say them out loud. My challenge to you, from the oldest to the youngest, is at lunch today, do that. Even if you're eating by yourself. They may think you're crazy. That's okay. People have thought I was crazy for years. But let's praise God for His hand in our lives, for what He's done in our lives. Let's think of three different things at lunch today. Make it a topic of conversation. What are three things God did for you today, Dale Hearn, or has done in your life? Tell us, please. We'd like to hear. Three things, Melissa. Three things. And then last. In Christ Jesus, you're all... Sons of God through faith. That's not Paul being sexist by sons of God. That had legal implications in Roman world. So all of you women got the legal rights of being a son in Jesus. He's elevating here. He's not being sexist. 
Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Think of it like my coat. Or better yet, my shirt. If I took off my shirt, not only would you all laugh, but you'd leave. But when I put on my shirt, and that's the same Greek verb, it's like clothes. You don't see my naked body, you see my clothes. When you put on Christ, God looks at you, and in the image that Paul's using, he says, oh, that's my son, that's Jesus. I can tell, looks just like him. Because you've put him on. And that, he doesn't look at that, oh, that's my Jewish Jesus, or my Greek Jesus, or my Latin Jesus, or my African Jesus, or my Chinese Jesus, or my Asian Jesus, or my Japanese Jesus, or my Mongolian or Russian. He says, it's Jesus, Son of God through faith. There's not slave, not free, not rich, not poor, not imprivileged, not deprivileged. There's not male, not female. There's not red, yellow, black, or white. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's a truth I want to live this week, and I want people to see me live that truth. Can I bless you in Jesus' name? We'll depart. Father, I thank you so much for the honor and blessing of getting to teach this morning. I thank you so much for Rabbi Michael and his children being here this morning. I pray blessings on his wife and what she's got to do today. I ask your blessings on everyone that is here. Father, would you clean out their ears, soften their heart, Open their eyes to see your hand in their lives and to bring you praise and glory for what you do. In the name of Yeshua, of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'll see you guys uh, next week. No class.